All right, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining me here at the Digital Cathedral on a beautiful Sunday morning in Houston, Texas. This is the first Sunday of December. It's hard to believe this year is almost over. We're looking at January 2020. I'm, I'm really excited about 2020. I think 2020 is going to be, there are going to be a lot of plays on 2020, I'm sure, especially in, uh, in the kingdom. It's going to be a year of 2020 eyesight, you know, 2020 understanding. going to be a, a lot of takeoff on it. And we're almost there. <clears throat> this is the first Sunday of December, and I'm particularly excited today because I'm starting a five-part series every Sunday of December. I want you to forgive me for not doing a Christmas message, okay? I'm not going to do a Christmas message on, let's see, 1-8-50, on the 22nd, which would be the Sunday before Christmas. We're going to be hip deep in this five-part series that I'm doing, and I'm doing this five-part series to get us in preparation for what I want to do in January, which is to take the books of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians and do, do some expository teaching, which means we're going to go through them verse by verse. And I would assume it's going to take the whole year to go through those four books. It's not that many pages in the Bible, but there's a lot of depth in there. And I've wanted to do, do it for some time. I started getting, uh, a couple of months ago, this insatiable desire to get back into the Bible and dig out stuff that we hadn't seen yet. I feel like there's tremendous uh, wisdom and uncovering of mystery in Scripture that we haven't yet, uh, we haven't yet unearthed for all of us to see. So I've just had this, this compulsion to do it. So we're, we're going to start it. We'll see how it goes, how it all unwinds. So to get us prepared for that, I'm doing a five-part series every Sunday of December that I'm calling Unhook the Book. <laughs> Unhook the Book. And what this, what this series is all about really is um, learning how to read our Bible to, for the most possible effective use. So let, let me just answer the what, the how, and the why of, of this five weeks, all right? What we're going to do is this. We're going to unhook the book, which is the Bible. I want to unhook the book from things that it was never intended to be. And I want to, I want to unhook it so that it can become everything that it was supposed to be. Uh, I, want to, I, want to put the, I want to put the Scripture in its rightful position. The, the Bible... And some of you are probably going to turn the video off after this first statement. The Bible is not inerrant. It is not inerrant. The Bible is not the fourth member of the Trinity. We have, man has put it to that position. The Bible never claims to be inerrant. It is God-breathed, but that doesn't mean it's inerrant. God, Adam was God-breathed. God breathed into Adam. And Adam certainly wasn't perfect. And we could go on with that. It, it's, it's not the fourth member of the Trinity. It's not, the Bible is not to replace the spirit of truth as the primary agent to lead you into all truth. Jesus said he would give us the spirit of truth. He didn't say he would give us a book. Now having said that, having said that, the Bible is a tremendous source of wisdom and understanding. It's a tremendous uh, a gold mine of truth that is, that is packed with revelation and mystery. 
that I honestly feel much of what has not yet been discovered. And that's why I want to do this study. So that's what we're going to do. How we're going to do it is this. What we want to do, we're going to look at how we can best release the Bible to us in this uh, journey that we're, this journey of truth that all of us are on. How, how we can rightly divide the Bible to discover its maximum value. I, I want 2020 to be we pull maximum value out of the scripture. And why are, why are we doing this? Well, I, as I said just a couple of minutes ago, I want to lay down some helps that you can keep in mind as we progressively go through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Uh, what Paul was revealing when he, when he talks about the finished work of the cross, when he talks about the kingdom, when he talks about all that we have because of what God's grace has direct deposited into all of our lives. Most of you have never done that. Most of, most of you, your Bible reading, your Bible study, you might have read a couple of books, but most of your study has been topical. Most of the, most of the uh, teaching that you have heard in your charismatic, Pentecostal, Baptist, holiness backgrounds have been topical. We take, the pastor would take an idea or a topic, he would build his points and pull scriptures from different places to support the teaching that he was giving. Nothing wrong with that. But when you do an expository, it takes on an entirely different dimension because now you're, you're going to have to deal with all of the hard verses. You're going to have to deal with the context. You're going to have to deal with the audience. You're going to have to deal with the culture. There's a lot more that's involved in an expository teaching than just pulling it out to support your argument. So it's, it's called hermeneutics. That's the theological term for it. Or how to interpret the Bible. Now, being, being in the place that I'm at on social media and kind of at the front edge of a lot of the grace movement, all that's been going on uh, in this transfiguration, I don't say transformation anymore because I think it's a transfiguration. We're becoming something that we never were. I, I, have, I deal with a lot of people that don't read the Bible anymore. They've totally dismissed the Bible. Have no, they don't want anything to do with the Bible. It's pro, most of it has been because... They discovered, based on the teachings that somebody gave them that were false, that the Bible's not accurate, so you can just throw the whole thing out. All right, so they don't, read, they don't get anything from it. Some people don't get anything from it. They say, I read it. I don't understand it. So if, there's a whole group of people that have just totally set the Bible on the shelf. All it's doing now is gathering dust. Then I've got a, an, an entire another group of people that follow that take every word literally. Every word literally. Especially, they, and most of those use the King James Version. And what they're doing, they're searching for the ultimate trump card, the ultimate scripture that will safeguard everything that they already believe. That's called eisegesis. That's where you have a preconceived idea and you go to the Bible to prove it. If you're a Calvinist, you go to the Bible to prove your Calvinism doctrine. If you're an Armenian, you go to prove that doctrine. If you're a Universalist, you go to prove your particular stance. Every word is taken literally. They're looking for that proof text that will absolutely confirm their 
doctrinal position. So the question is this, how do we, how do we unhook the book? How do, we, how do we discover the riches of Scripture? How can we utilize it to our absolute max? How can, we, how can we pull into this book and get out of it everything that the Spirit of Truth wants us to get? So let's, let's start really basic this morning. Can we do that? I want to start really foundational. Each week I'll build on it a little bit. Even when I start foundationally, some of the things I'm going to say is going to be like a gut punch to you. Some of you, especially new, new viewers on the Digital Cathedral because of, of your background and where you've come from. So let me just start basically. When you open your Bible, one of the first things that you notice is the way that the Bible's laid out. There is an Old Testament section and there's a New Testament section. Now that, that division of Old Testament section, New Testament section wasn't just put in there by the editors uh, so that there could be a division. It's not the editor's choice to break the Bible story into two parts. That division between Old Testament and New Testament has tremendous significance. And it greatly affects how you understand the meaning of the Bible when you read it. So if you're going to rightly divide the word, which is what we want to do, if you're going to rightly divide the word, then you have to understand the Old, Old Testament from the New Testament. These two testaments show this monumental shift, this, this great variation in how man understands God, how he relates to God, and how he sees God relating to man. So a, 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 a person's, let me bring it into a natural context. A person's last will and testament is the final word and intention to those people that remain after the one who wrote the will dies, passes on. That's called the last will and testament. The will of a person expresses the intentions of the author of the will. The testament, if there is a testament, and sometimes there is a testament, sometimes there's not, but a testament sends forth the evidence of the testator's love for those that he's leaving the will to. You know, the, the will might say to my nephew John, who always was by my side, who stayed with me through good and bad. See, he's laying out why he's going to, why the will is going to read a certain way. He has a testament. And he says, this is why I'm giving this to John. I'm giving him my, my vintage Corvette. This goes to my grandson, John, because he was always with me, always loved me, uh, drove me when I couldn't drive myself anymore. So I'm leaving that car to John. Now, there are times, for various reasons, that a person rewrites their will. If a person rewrites their will... The last will that they write is the will that is in force. Are you with me? Now, the old will may be interesting. It might have some, some great facts for people to read, but it's the last will that carries the legal authority. Now, with that in mind, let me read something to you from Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. It says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Verse 13. He says, a new covenant he has made. The first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
So what is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying there's two wills that have been made here, two covenants. There's two wills. He said there was a first will and a last will. And just like Uncle Fred that wrote a new will, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the first will is now obsolete. It's vanishing. It's passing away. It's interesting. It has some good interesting facts in it. You know, you might get a kick out of reading it, the first will, but it's the last will that has the legal authority. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. If Uncle Fred had two wills, can you imagine how confusing it would be if Uncle Fred had two wills, old will, new will? The fa he, Uncle Fred dies, the, the family gathers in at the lawyer's office, and the lawyer says, okay, let me read a little bit out of the new will and a little bit out of the old will. So here's what Uncle Fred said, Latin, new will. Here's what Uncle Fred said, first will. Well, first will, he might have said this, but he had a little different perspective on second will. He might have wanted the family to see his, his uh, perception changed in the last will. So it would be a little bit confusing to the family, to the lawyer to say, let's read some of the last first will and some of the last will. Lawyer doesn't do that. Lawyer says, Uncle Fred had two wills. This is the last will. This was his desire. This was his intention. Now, listen to me very carefully. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with the nation of Israel exclusively. Exclusively. Nobody else. It was all about, the Old Testament is all about the relationship that Israel shared with God and that God shared with Israel. As Gentiles, we read the Old Testament, we might find some value in the Old Testament. As Gentiles, when we read the Old Testament, we might find some insight. But it's important as Gentiles, when we read the Old Testament, to know that it was not ever addressed to us. It wasn't intended for us. The Old Testament was not written with you in mind. Let me be even stronger. You were excluded from the Old Testament. You were absolutely excluded. Had nothing to do with you. So who was it written for? Who was the law given to? Let's, let's go to the Bible. Let's go to the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter uh, 26 and verse 46. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 46 says, These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel. Where? On the Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Now let me read that again because I have a feeling, just as I'm standing here teaching this, that some of you are going to be shocked by this. These are the statutes and judgments, the laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel. Made between himself and the children of Israel. The prophet Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai and delivered it to the Jewish people, the children of Israel. They were the only people that this testament, this will, this law was ever intended for. Period. Paragraph. End of story. Now let me just follow that up. Does that mean that you and I can't get some value out of the Old Testament? Absolutely we can. I, I, 
I used to read uh, one chapter of Proverbs a day. Did it for a lot of years. It was a result of going to a Bill Gothard seminar, and he encouraged everybody, if you want to know the wisdom of God, read a proverb a day. There's 31 chapters of Proverbs, so you can read one a day. I did that, and I, I learned a lot. I saw a lot in it. But it wasn't written for me or to me. The only people it was intended for was the children of Israel. In Psalm 147, Psalm 147, because this changes how you look at it. Psalm 147, almost to the end of the book of Psalms. Psalm 147, and let me read verses 19 and 20. David understood that. It says that God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus or this way with any other nation. And as for his judgments, they haven't known him. In other words, David is saying that this whole thing was written to Israel and he hasn't dealt like this, that no other nation has this Old Testament given to them. He hasn't dealt with them in that way, David says. That, that means to you and me that are non-Jews, we were never given the law. Nor were we ever expected to live under the law or under the constraints of the law. Now this is mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing because we've been drilled with law. Now, there's good moral ideas in the law. But it wasn't written to you. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Those are, those are good moral truths. But it wasn't addressed to you. Here, here's what Paul said to us Gentiles. Listen to this. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Verse 15 and 6. Verses 14 through 16. Romans chapter 2. This, this is good. Romans chapter 2 verse 14. Says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law. Paul recognized it. For when Gentiles who do not have the law. By nature do the things of the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing. What's, what is Paul saying? He's saying, for us that are Gentiles, there are things that we naturally know are right and wrong, things we should do and not do. We know inherently in our heart not to kill people. Our, our conscience tells us. He's saying, look, you don't have a law written in stone. You now have a, a fleshly tablet, your heart. And the Holy Spirit will show you, reveal to you. Don't, don't do, do. Don't do, do. You don't need the law any longer to be uh, your guide or to try to instruct you. And there's some reasons we're going to get into in just a minute about why we need to get away from the law. Paul is saying, yes, there, inherently there are some parts of the law that Gentiles keep. It will either accuse them or excuse them, but it's all coming from within. Twice Paul makes it clear that Gentiles do not have the law. But because, now listen, here's where we zero in. Because we have not divided the covenants, 
Because we have not looked at the Old Testament as being to the Jews, to the nation of Israel exclusively, and not to the Gentiles, what we have done is we have mixed covenants. And the law has infiltrated the church so much that we are battling today. Grace is battling today what Paul battled in the churches that he established. We have heard, we have heard law so long that we have just accepted it into the church. Come on, how many times is your pastor, when you were in a, in a brick and mortar building, how many times did your pastor pull a, a verse from the New Testament and a verse from the Old Testament? And what's happened now is the same thing that happened with Moses. Moses took Ten Commandments. And to help the people keep the Ten Commandments, he expanded it to where now there are 613 laws for the Jewish people to keep. Now haven't we done the same thing in the church today? We have taken laws, and now depending on what church you go to, what flavor you are, We've taken and added more laws to the law that we never had to try to improve our behavior, to modify our behavior. Now, if you're, uh, the church background I came of actually had a book called the Church Manual. And in that manual, it spelled out everything that we could do and not do, what was sin, what wasn't sin. I think, I think the motive in the heart probably of those that wrote the church manual in the church of the Nazarene were good people, had a good intention. But after about two generations, same thing that happened in the nation of Israel. After about two generations, we set that church manual in stone. So that if somebody did what they said in the church manual not to do, we counted it like breaking scripture. It became set in stone, and it was. It has interwoven, law has interwoven its way in and it has totally tried to snuff out grace. It has given grace a little part, but not the place that it should have. So the, 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 the first responsibility when we approach the Bible is to understand the distinction between the two testaments. The testament of law is the old. The testament of grace is the new. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both. When you teach, you either teach law or you teach grace. You can't teach both. You can't teach both. It's one or the other. The difference between law and grace is the great divide. So when we get into reading Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, you need to understand that because Paul's going to be dealing with people that have fallen back under law when they have come to grace. So when you, when you come to church, when you go to church... Some of you are watching this during the week. Some of you are watching it after you went to your church service. When, when you go to church and you hear a mixture, which you hear in most churches, you hear something like this. God loves you unconditionally. That's New Testament. He loves you unconditionally with these conditions. That's Old, that's Old Testament. When we say, yes, God loves you unconditionally, but you need to do this to be favored by God, that's mixing testaments. When you hear this teaching, yes, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, but now you got to do your part. You have to do your part to be in relationship. That's mixing of the covenants. When you go to church and you hear the message, by grace you are saved, 
But you need to do these things to remain whole. Mixing of covenants. That's why we have multitudes of people today that are confused. They're double-minded. They don't know what to believe. They have a distorted picture of God because they've heard a little bit that God is like Jesus, but he's also this angry deity, this, this Zeus-like character in the Old Testament that would slay you, kill you at the drop of a hat if you disobeyed. So when you put your finger on Scripture and you find yourself getting nervous about this angry God that is ready to vent on people that don't obey him, you know that you're coming out of the wrong testament. That's not, that's not who Jesus reflected in the Gospels. So why did, why did God go through all these warnings to the nation of Israel? Because that was the covenant that the people wanted with him based on what they did or did not do and judgment would come if they did not obey. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament was based on a mutual understanding of performance and conditions of performance. It's what the people requested. Do you remember when Moses was at the bottom of Mount Sinai, God was trying to bring the people up, say, Moses, bring the people up that we can fellowship, that we can commune together. And all the people said, man, we ain't going to the top of that mountain. Moses, you go up there and you find out what he wants us to do to be favored by him, what we can do to make him happy. And you come back and tell us and we'll, we'll, we'll do it. See, in Exodus chapter 19, this is what it gets after. Exodus chapter 19. Look, what I'm teaching you this morning is so foundational and fundamental. You say, I, I, I know all that, and yet the law has woven its way into your life, and very few of us really live by full grace. There is, a, there is a point in still many of our thinking where grace stops and the law kicks in, that we somehow are under the judgment of God if we don't do, do, do. So this is a very important, this is a very important teaching this morning. To get you settled into what is old, what is new. Now here's, here's why that whole thing happened. Exodus chapter 19 verse 5. God says, therefore if you will obey me, my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all, and all the earth is mine. Then he goes on in, in verse 6 and says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So God says, look, if, if, you, if you will uh, indeed obey my voice and keep the covenant, if you do everything that's in it, look, God knew, it, God knew they couldn't do it. God knew that it was mission impossible. He said, you, you'll be a special people. You'll be a, if that's what you want, this is how you do it, you'll be special. So in ver verse 8, it says, then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You talk about spiritual pride and self-righteousness. Everything he said, we'll do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. You know what? They lacked a very basic understanding that they were not able to do it. And it's taken us 2,000 years in most churches to figure out we still can't do it ourselves. 
They could not live up to the demands that they put on themselves. Neither can we live up to the demands that the Baptist church puts on us or the Nazarene church puts on us or the Catholic church puts on us. We cannot live up to their expectations and demands. And when we don't, we feel that we have fallen into blatant sin. We're condemned. We feel guilty and that God has separated himself from us. And it all originates because we have not divided the covenants. And the church that we go to has just mingled them and meshed them and swum them together to try to make them all work out. There were a lot of sincere people in the nation of Israel that said, we can do this. And they tried and tried and tried. They couldn't do it. So when we, now we come to post-resurrection, Paul, Paul speaks to Israel post-resurrection. Now think about this, the situation Paul's in. Paul is ministering to Jews that are on both sides of the cross that lived under law but now had come over to grace. Paul was ministering to a transitional generation. That's a hard core. I'm standing here in the digital cathedral and I'm ministering to a transitional generation that is coming out of the mixture message into a message of pure grace. And it's a hard message because we've been so pounded with, with mixture. That it's, hard, it's as hard for us to let the mixture go as it was for the Jews to let the law go. <laughs> so Paul addresses them over in Romans chapter 7. This is, this is rich. Romans chapter 7 and verse 5. Romans chapter 7 verse 5. Paul says, For when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions, my Jewish friends, which we had when we were trying to do this work in the flesh, trying to please God in the flesh. He said these sinful passions, watch, which were aroused by the law. That's what the law does every time. Show me a legalistic church. Show me a fundamentalist Baptist church. A King James only Baptist church. Bless God, we believe the Bible, every word of it, just like it's written. Women can't teach. Women shouldn't cut their hair, can't wear pants. You show me a legalistic church, I will show you a church that is filled with sin. Might not look like it. The facade and the veneer is good. They're, they're filled, the church is filled with with. Uh, Envy, strife, backbiting, gossip, because it's aroused by the law. Every time you say you can't do, you cannot do, it is wrong to do, it fuels the fire within to do. And Paul was saying that to the Jews. Guys, don't, do I, do I have to spell it out to you, Paul says, that back when we were trying to do this in the flesh, we couldn't do it, and, and, and the law just kept arousing this desire to move away from it. That old nature, that carnal mindset, the, the, the flesh that he's talking about is what the carnal mind controlled. The, 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 problem, the problem was they didn't know what to do to please God. There was always something more. They, they didn't need guidance on what to do to please God. They needed the empowerment of grace which came in the new covenant that Paul was now bringing to them. So in verse 6, he gives them the empowerment. Verse 5, he says, guys, you know, back when we walked in the flesh, our carnal minds were driving us. The law was arousing the passions. We failed at every hand. But now we have been delivered from the law. 
The old is now obsolete. Having died to what we were held by so, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So Paul gets into the empowerment. You know, it's really no different for us. You and I are being changed from glory to glory. I've done a lot of teaching on sonship. I've done a lot of teaching on breaking of bonds that are still holding us. I've done a lot of teaching on what you see, you can possess, you see in spirit, you can have it. We're being transformed internally. That's the New Testament. Trying to transform by external regulation is Old Testament. Trying to discipline your flesh will never change you, never have lasting change. You can be in a church meeting where you get hyped up to put your flesh under control. You can get hyped up to where you come down the altar, throw your cigarettes on the altar and say, bless God, I'll never smoke another cigarette in the rest of my life. You go home and you dump all the rest of the carton of cigarettes into the wastebasket and you say, I'll never smoke again. You wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you go out and you find yourself rummaging through the trash can to find a cigarette. You know, because you were taught that the law was don't smoke, it's sin. And so you tried to, to discipline yourself by, by flesh behavior, and it doesn't change. You cannot, you cannot change that way. Now, what's popular today, what, what draws great crowds are what, what is called a seeker-sensitive service. And a seeker-sensitive service is when we try to psych ourselves into a happy place, a fulfilled life by soulish endeavors. You know, these four steps make a happy marriage. Here's how you can have a fulfilled life, and we lay it out. It's all bringing your mindset into happiness. The problem is it doesn't produce lasting change. Permanent change comes from that sixth verse of Romans 7. We have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that now we serve out of newness in spirit. You want transformation? Then the new covenant, not the old covenant, brings the newness of life. If you go to the Old Covenant to try to find out how to live, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to be very disappointed. Because the law does what the law always does. The law produces a sinful behavior. All right, if you haven't heard one word I've said, hear this. The problem with law is that law within itself produces no power to change. Law does a good job at pointing out the wrong, the transgression. How many of you went to church for years and years and all you heard was sin being preached? Because that's what the law does. The law does an excellent job, a supreme job at pointing out failures and bringing cousins guilt, condemnation, and fear. But there's no power within the law to change you. Absolutely none. So the story of Israel is, is like this. They, they came to serve God, worship God, obey God. They couldn't do it. They fell into apostasy. They, they, they fell away. They would repent and come back. It's the same story of most Christian lives. You're either up or you're down based on your behaviors. 
They couldn't. You can't. And you know what? God knew it the whole time. <laughs> he knew in dealing with Israel they couldn't do it. The whole issue was self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is nothing other than attempting to make yourself right before God based on what you do. That's self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness carries with it automatically judgment of other people. Because if you're able to hold a standard, <clears throat> you don't do drugs, you see somebody else that does drugs, they give their life to the Lord, they go back to drugs, you judge them. Because your righteousness is based on what you do yourself. And you're able to keep it, so you judge those that can't do it. And self-righteousness is still the major obstacle today. It moves in religious people through pride. Pride is the major roadblock to accepting grace as the supplier of all things. Religious pride. I still, I, I still have contact with some people from my old church background. And it infuriates them. That I, I no longer teach you have to do, do, do to become. And they're constantly telling me, they say things like, well, you know, it's a gift, but you have to receive it. No, it's direct deposited. My, my, when I get money, it's direct deposited into my account. I don't receive it. It's direct deposit. It's mine. Now, what I do with it is up to me. I can spend it and not spend it, but it's direct deposited. I had no hand in getting it whatsoever. It was just deposited. That's what, that's, that's what the finished work of the cross was. It was a direct deposit into the spirits of all humanity. When he reconciled us, the reconciliation was a direct deposit. It's a done deal. Nothing you can do to enhance it. So what did God do? God took, God took his perfect law as a mirror to show Israel and to show the church, to still show us. If you go back to the old covenant, if you're living out of there, he uses the law as a mirror to show you your spiritual condition and your inability based on what you do to please him. Now when we come to the new covenant, he uses Jesus as the mirror. But when the old covenant, when we saw the mirror, we saw our shortcomings. We saw what we couldn't do. We saw how, how we thought we displeased him. The mirror in the New Testament, Jesus, shows us who we really are and what our authentic identity is and how we already please him. How he already looks at us and says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The old covenant was do and fall short. The new, the new covenant is rest, trust, and believe Knowing that as he is, so are you in this world. Knowing that as you are, so, as so are you in this world as he is, apart from your praying, your Bible study, your giving, all of the little things you thought you had to do, your ministering, your job, whatever. When you come to the new covenant, you find that all you could not do in the old covenant, he came along and did as you, for you, apart from all of your works. That's grace. Now, even with Israel, even with Israel, God's grace superseded their countless failures. Even though they failed time and time again, God knew they would. God knew the law would never work. God had their back. Look what it says in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's just go back there and get this right out of the prophet's mouth. Ezekiel chapter 
uh, 36. Let me just get over there real quick. The Old Testament is harder for me to navigate. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. This is God speaking. This, okay, all they've gone through, all the disobedience, all the failures, all the ups, all the downs. God speaks to them and he says this in verse 26. I will give you a new heart. And I will, all, all these are I will. God, God says, okay, look, you failed, you've messed up. I'm setting you aside. This is what I'm, I'm going to do. I'm not asking your permission. I'm not asking your agreement. I, I'm going to do this. Verse 26, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the stone, heart of stone out of you and give you a flesh heart. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, he goes on with a little bit more in that passage. But what I did in my Bible, I underlined all of where God said, I will, I will, I will. Because it's the Old, Old Testament. It's the Old Covenant of law. It's the Old Testament of death. It's the Old Covenant of failure. It's the Old Covenant of we can never measure up. So God says, I knew it the whole time. So I'm going to come along and I'm going to put a new heart, a new spirit. I'm going to empower you. I will be your God. You'll be my people. All he's doing, all he ever does, and this may take 500,000 years for some people, all he's ever waiting for is us to come to the end of ourselves. And I got some friends that I think it's going to take a couple hundred years after they die for them to come to the end of themselves. They're still going to be trying to prove their righteousness to God by how good they were. But eventually we will, and eventually we will need his grace. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul, Paul, Paul really lays her down. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul says this. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That's what the law always does. The law entered to fan the fire. The, 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 the law is like flying in a helicopter over the forest fires in California, and instead of dropping water, the helicopter drops gasoline. That's, that's the effect that law has on sin. It inflames it. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So if sin abounded to number seven, Grace abounds to number eight. If, grace go, if sin goes to number nine, grace goes to ten. What, one version, I can't remember which one it was I, when I was studying it. It says where sin abounded, grace super exceeded. I like that. I like that a lot. So that's, that's, that's why you, you can't miss the fact of a good God. Even in the Old Covenant, there are glimpses, there are shadows, but there's, there's a lot. See, we can, like I said, we can pull some wisdom out. For, for example, it says, what is it, 42 times in the Old Testament, it says, His mercy endures forever. Now, it's hard, hard to, to, to counteract that when you're reading a covenant where He is an angry deity that kills people. Yet you can, you can pull that, that little nugget out of there. God had an agenda for Israel, and he just moved it step by step by step. 
And he will, he will keep moving it all the way to its completion to where in, in Romans chapter 11 verses 25, 6, and 7 right in there, he goes on to say, and all Israel will be saved. They will all be delivered. They will all come to an awareness. Before, before Adam had a problem, before Israel had a problem, before you and I had a problem, before anybody had a problem, before the problem ever arose, God in his knowledge, God in his grace, God in his goodness, God in his mercy that endures forever, instituted and fully executed the solution. He completed it. You say he did? That's why we need to get to the New Covenant, to the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures where we start widening this down. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, God, God completed this thing from the very get-go, right? 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, who desires. Do you know what that, that word desire means? It's more than just hopes. It's, it's, it's a, it, the word actually means he's resolved. Or he's determined. He has an absolute purpose. Sounds like he's pretty firm on this. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Moses wasn't the mediator. The old covenant wasn't the mediator. It didn't set the guidelines, didn't set the boundaries, didn't set the standard. Jesus did who gave himself a ransom for a double L, for all to be testified of in due time. This today is the due time. You and I are in the season, the due time, when it's being testified that Jesus was the ransom for everybody, that God desires all to be saved, and that God's purpose, his resolve, his determination... His, his hard-driving absolute purpose will absolutely be met. And now if you, if you come over just a couple pages to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, it says that he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, Old Covenant, Old Testament, behavior, standard of living, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Watch, I told you that he came with a solution before there was a problem according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us, which was given to us before time began. Why have we been so ignorant of this? Because we've been in churches and institutions that mixed Old Covenant with New Covenant. We've had our eyes shielded to the absolute depth of God's grace. The Father will not be satisfied until all of humanity comes to the knowledge that he, the Father, has taken full responsibility to make himself known to us. It's his job to bring you into an encounter, to experience him. It's his responsibility to bring us into a place where we see our oneness with him, that it was always, that it was always one. It was never separation. He, he's, he's, erasing, he's erasing this false notion that we were ever separated from him except in our minds. People are awakening 
around the world to that fact. It has nothing to do with our effort. It has nothing to do with what we believe. It has nothing to do with our faith. It has everything to do with understanding His grace, which is an impartation of divine enablement that empowers us to live the life that He has uniquely for each of us and he designed it uniquely for you and for me before the foundation of the world. If you're going to unhook the book, if you're going to pull every revelation you can out of it, then avoid reading the Bible with Old Testament eyes that only see rules and obedience as the trigger for God's favor. You are not a Jew. Let me say it again. You are not part of the children of Israel that was under the old covenant law. You're under a new covenant. You are under a covenant of grace that super exceeds any part of your behavior. You are living under a divine influence that produces tremendous effortless change in your life. And all you do is rest in him. The master key to unhooking the book, to drinking the new wine, is to know that there are two testaments, old and new, and always read it, all of it, through the lens of the new. And if what you read in the old puts you out of focus as you look at it to what you see in the new, the best thing I can tell you is disregard the old. The old has passed away. It is obsolete. You, my friends, all of you on the digital cathedral, all of you that are watching around the world, you are under a new covenant. And can I tell you today, the good news is you are beneficiaries automatically to everything that it has for you. Father, today... May this new covenant become strong in our understanding. Father, may we know how to rightly divide the word. May we see old from new, law from grace, behavior modification from work of the Spirit. This week as we go about living our daily life, I pray that your word would grow bold and strong. Not the word so much on printed page, but the word that comes from your mouth to our ears, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week. God bless you. See you Wednesday night. Don't forget 8 o'clock on my Facebook page. And next week we'll hit part two of Unhook the Book. We thank you for being with us today on the Digital Cathedral. We trust that today's teaching helped you in your journey to the abundant life Jesus has freely given to all. If you would like to help support us in spreading the gospel of grace, you can do so by going to donkeithley.com to make your donation. We thank you for your prayers and continued monthly support and look forward to seeing you again next week at the Digital Cathedral.